Well, good morning. Let me invite you to take out your Bible or turn on your device to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20. And while you're doing that, let me say a word of thank you to the people of Elkdale Baptist Church. I have had the privilege of being your pastor now for 10 years. We've spent a decade together and I'm grateful for your patience with me, your love, your encouragement. Wendy and I and our children are so blessed to call Elkdale our home and to call you our faith family. And I am thankful for what God has done over the last 10 years and what he will continue to do through our ministry together here in Selma and around the world. And so I just want to say thank you because the anniversary of a pastor certainly says something about him and his work in the church, but it says something about the faithfulness of the congregation to follow him and walk with him and encourage him and pray for him. And so I want to say thank you for uh, sharing these 10 years with me. Now, you have your Bible open or your device on, and we're looking at Exodus chapter 20. And we began last week a study of the Ten Commandments. And I told you, as we look at this uh, pivotal passage of Scripture, really in all of the Bible, this uh, uh, piece of Scripture that the world has known uh, for over 3,000 years, the law of God given to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, I told you that the Ten Commandments can really be divided into two groups. There is the first four commandments that deal with mankind's relationship with God. They are what we would call vertical commandments, our relationship to the God of all creation, the one who is over us. And then the second part of the Ten Commandments, uh, verses uh, or commandments five through ten, uh, deal with more of a horizontal commandments, the commandments between mankind and other uh, people, relationship commandments. And so in the, in the first four, we have this, this hierarchy that we are to be right with holy God, that this is how we live with holy God. And coming out of that hierarchy, now we will have right relationship with others. But make no mistake, the hierarchy is important. You won't have a right relationship with those around you if you do not have a right relationship with the God who's over you. And so we must get the first ones correct if we are to have any opportunity at living out the second section of the Ten Commandments. Now, one of the things we're doing at Elkdale is we're working to memorize these uh, commandments together. In fact, we're trying to memorize verbatim Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, that says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We memorize this verse because it shows us the context for which when the Ten Commandments are given. It shows us that God is working on behalf of His people. And then we are learning the Ten Commandments in a quick reference form. Last week we began with, and I hope you've been working on, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. But last week we began with the quick reference of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And today we will add to it the second reference, the second quick reference to the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol. I encourage you, brother or sister, memorize Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, and begin to put to memory this list of commandments so that we can live and please holy God. Now, before we dive into them, let me just remind you of three truths we uncovered last week. Reasons why we need to study the Ten Commandments, or reason why we, we need to find ourselves uh, pouring over the Ten Commandments, or, or really kind of introductory truths from the Ten Commandments. The first truth has to do with Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. And let me state it for you again, and that is simply this. The Ten Commandments were given after the grace of God. 
We do not serve God through law in order to merit His love or find His favor. We serve God out of response to the grace that He's already given us. He gave the law to the nation of Israel after He had saved them out of Egypt. And so we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, that the setting of the law is first and foremost a response to the grace of God. Secondly, we uncovered last week that not only is the Ten Commandments set in the arena of grace, but we also learned that when we study the Ten Commandments, we are reminded that God tells us what He expects from His family, what He expects from His people. We are not free to worship God however we please. We are not free to express our worship to God with whichever way we want. We are, we are called by God to obey His commandments. In fact, Jesus would tell us in the New Testament, if you love me, obey my commandments. And so in the Ten Commandments, we are given the prescription. We are subscribed to the list of what God desires from His people. So right worship means obeying and following the Ten Commandments. So what do we learn from last week? The Ten Commandments are set in the grace of God, and they are given because God desires to tell us exactly what He wants. But also, the third and final truth we kind of uncovered last week as we began this series is simply this. As we study the Ten Commandments, we learn not just the law, but about the lawgiver. We see his character and his holiness. We see his desire and his goodness. When you study the Ten Commandments, you realize these are good laws. They are good for people. They are beneficial for society. They are healthy for the individual and the family and the nation. Why? Because in the laws of God is poured the character of God. And so as we study the Ten Commandments, we learn not only has God first given us grace, not only has He, uh, out of love, showed us exactly what He wants, but ultimately He is showing Himself to us through the law. We see the law giver. Now, we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4, and we pick up this second commandment, thou shalt not have any other idols or graven images or statues. Let me read for you Exodus chapter 4 uh, through verse 6. In fact, this second commandment is one of the more lengthy ones of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me. Verse 6, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word again and we hear from you, remind us that the Ten Commandments are our response to your grace. You gave them to us to tell us exactly what you desire from your people who have experienced your mercy and your grace. We want to honor you, Lord. We want to worship you correctly and rightly in your eyes. We want to show you how much we love you because you first loved us. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to examine these commandments, to lay our heart before you. Lord, search us and know us. And Father, conform us even more to the image of your Son who fulfilled the commandments completely. Father, I pray now that you bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, imagination is a wonderful thing. When we think about children and their imagination, we are excited. We encourage it. 
Imagination comes in handy when you're an adult and you're listening to a, a play or, or you're reading a book and your mind's eye can take you into places. And when we see children sitting around their tea table pretending to be princesses or they're grabbing their stick and running through the yard pretending to be the knight in shining armor, the imagination is a wonderful thing. But unlike children, adults don't need to walk into the presence of God trying to imagine what He expects from us. Imagination in our relationship with God is not necessarily always a good thing. Yes, we read the Bible and our, and our minds explode with thoughts of what He's like and what, what heaven will be and, and what it's like to know Him. But ultimately, we are not free to imagine God however we want to. We are not free to, to make Him into any image that we desire. And that's exactly what the second commandment is dealing with. The second commandment is simply this. If the first commandment is about choosing the right God, thou shalt have no other gods before me, then the second commandment is about choosing to worship the right God the right way. Choosing to worship the right God the right way. The second commandment, God is giving us not the object of worship, for he's already declared that in the first commandment, but he's given us the mode of worship how we are to approach Him, how we are to worship Him. So as we examine this second commandment, let us think to ourselves, what are we, how are we worshiping God correctly? And so in this commandment, we have two parts. The commandment is divided into two parts. The first part is found in verse 4, and it's simply the prohibition. It is the command, it is the declaration, it is the you shall not part of the verse. It is the thou shall not part of the examination of the commandment. And we find in the text in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself the card image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or the water under the earth. And so we have in this text the idea that we are not to form God into some sort of idol or worship. The second commandment is a prohibition against it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are over 14 words for the use of image or idol, and they're all always in the negative sense. And when you find these 14 words, you'll discover in the Hebrew that they come up to about three different definitions. The first definition, the one that's probably the most humorous, is that when you find the Hebrew word for image or idol often used in the Old Testament, it will simply be translated pile of dung. Other places where you find the word image or idol translated in the Old Testament, it simply means worthless. And then the final definition, the third definition that you'll see of the word image or idol used in the Old Testament is vapor or mist. So when we take the word idol or image or carved image all through the Old Testament, here's what we come up with. A temporary worthless pile of dung. That's the definition that is given to us of idol worship. And so what God is doing is he's laying the weight of that on the shoulders of the nation of Israel. And he's saying, be careful that you do not approach me like the nation of Egypt approached all their gods and turned their gods, their false gods, their fake gods into images. Because if you do that, it is approaching me as if I'm a pile of temporary worthless Dung. God is being very clear with the nation of Israel. You don't get to come to me however you choose to. You come to me how I desire you to in a manner worthy of worship. So let us think about this idea of idol. Let us think about what the Lord is doing. And there are a couple of things that, that I want you to understand when we talk about the ideas of idols. They are useless. They are no good. 
The nation of Israel has come out of Egypt where they are polytheistic. They believe in many gods and they form their gods in the shape of images and they worshiped those images. But we learned all through the Bible that those are no good. They're worthless. In fact, the psalmist would say in Psalm 115 uh, verses 4 through 7, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They are make no sound from their throat. The psalmist is getting to the crux to this idea that, that if you make for yourself a false idol, it is made by your hands and it will get you nowhere. It will do nothing for you. And so the question is, how does this ancient command how does this ancient command apply to us? Uh, I mentioned to you last week, and I'm certainly the case is true, that the majority of you that are watching this, all of you that are watching this, I would assume, if I come into your house, I would guess that there are not golden calves on your mantle that you bowed down to or worship. There are not Asherah poles in your yard or teepee poles, if you will. You don't uh, go and worship symbols and idols. And so the question is, is how does this ancient text of carving idols in the setting of Egypt's polytheistic point of view Apply to us, the modern reader. Well, brothers and sisters, there are three truths from this I want you to see about this prohibition. When we try to carve an image or an idol, we are attempting to limit God. To carve an image or an idol is an attempt to limit God. It is an attempt to control God. What what do I mean by that? Well, think about what the nation of Israel was told not to do. Do not make for yourself carven images. The word there is hue. Do not carve or shape images. Do not make anything that you think will resemble me. And the reason for that is, if you look at the rest of verse 4, is simply there's nothing we can make with our hands that could contain God's image. There's nothing we can make with our hands that could fully express who he is. Look at the rest of verse 4. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything in the likeness thereof. In heaven above, the earth beneath, or the water under the earth. This is the prohibition that comes from this, that we are not to carve images, that we are not to do this. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, what image can you carve by limited temporal hands of man that can contain the limitless eternal God of all creation? There is not a single thing that we can make, not a single image that we can carve that will somehow do justice to who God is. And in fact, if we begin to carve God into images, we are immediately trying to limit him and put him in a box and move him away from the grand, glorious nature of which he is. In the nation of Egypt, they had these polytheistic gods and they would carve images of these gods and each god would represent something that their flesh desired. They would have gods of sexual immorality and they would carve them in certain ways and they would have gods of of fertility when it came to gardening and growing and they would carve them in certain ways and they would have God of blessing on the generations and they would carve them in certain ways and and gods of prosperity and gods of protection. And with each one of the carven images, they are pinholing that God into that particular category. And so God looks at the nation of Israel and says, do not try to pin me down into the category that makes your mind comfortable. I am the limitless God and you will not place me in a box. You will not put me in some sort of image thereof. Now, the question is, how do we do this? 
How do we, in the modern culture, put God in this limited box? How do we go about this idea in our own heart? How, pastor, can I examine to make sure I'm not making God an image? Because I don't have carvings in my house. I don't have golden statues in my house. So, so what, am I, what, what am I doing? Well, let us remember that the Ten Commandments are not about the physical acts of law. They are about the spiritual heart of man. And so as God gives us the Ten Commandments, they are to examine our heart, not necessarily always what our hands are doing. And so we learn from the nation of Israel that God never showed his self to them, that he does not manifest himself in physical form to the nation of Israel. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, it talks about how God spoke to the nation of Israel. It says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day of the Lord who spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly and try making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Now, why do I share that verse with you? Because I want you to understand something. When God approached the nation of Israel, he spoke to them. We learn this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke to the nation of Israel. His revelation to them is through his voice. And so what does this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, anytime we find ourselves trying to limit God, it's because we are going against the very voice of God, the words of God. You see, how do you and I in our modern day heart who necessarily doesn't carve images attempt to limit God? Here's how we attempt to limit God. We do it in two simple ways. One, we don't listen to the word of God. We don't obey his word. We are people of the book. We are people who understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. And so we limit God when we decide not to listen to his voice. And so what else do we do? We limit God when we have this idea that we can listen to his voice, but interpret it however we please. We can make it however we want it to say. And so, brothers and sisters, we may not limit God into some carven image on a shelf, but we certainly will try to limit God in our heart by mitigating the very voice of God, by not listening to the word of God, by not following the commandments of God. This is exactly what God is calling them to do. Do not think you can limit me, know who I am, and follow me. You see, simply this, wrong thoughts about God will lead to the wrong worship of God, which will lead to us seeking an idol and not the real God. If I conceive in my mind what I think God is or who I think he is, and I begin to worship him in a way that pleases me and is not listening to his very word, that I am limiting that God into what I want and I'm carving him into an idol. I'm making him into an image that my heart desires. And when I do that, I have left the one true God and I've become an idolater. To carve an image or an idol is an attempt to limit God. To carve an image or an idol is an attempt to locate God. Now, why would God say that he doesn't want to be carved into an image? It's simply this. He doesn't want to be found in a location. He doesn't want us to think that we can put him in a place. In the day and age in which this is being written, remember Egypt, the polytheistic background is where the nation of Israel has come from after 400 years of slavery. And they are marching into the land of Canaan where they will find more polytheistic worship going on. And one of the things that happens in the ancient world is that when they carved themselves images, when they carved themselves statues, when they made themselves uh, golden calves or poles of Asher to worship, the Egyptians didn't believe necessarily that that golden calf was their god or that pole was their god, but they did believe that somehow in a mystic, magical way that whatever they made with their hands and placed in front of their god, their god would inhabit that figurine. 
Their God would be located in that place. And so why is this important in the pagan world? Because to the pagan world, they could walk away from that golden calf, go live however they wanted to morally and ethically, as long as they came back to that location and sacrificed themselves in some form or fashion. Maybe it was bringing a food offering to the statue where they believed that the God would fill his belly. Maybe it was making some immoral act in front of that statue, like sacrificing their children or cutting their body or performing some uh, sick, erotic, sexual thing. They would do it in front of that statue and believe somehow that because they were in that place, they were in front of their God. And so what God does in the second commandment is he makes very clear to the nation of Israel, you can carve something and think I'm there, but I am the God that cannot be contained in the heavens and the earth or under the earth. You will not locate me in a place for I am the God that says that the earth is his footstool and the heaven is his throne room. And so when we make for ourselves idols, we are attempting to locate God in a particular place. Now you may ask yourself, how how do we do this? Again, pastor, I, I don't have a golden calf in my living room. I don't think God is there. How, how do we do this? Oh, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves particularly here in the south in what we call the Bible Belt, where there are churches and steeples on every corner. We find ourselves battling this idea that God is somehow in some place and he's not in another. And how do we know this? Because Monday through Saturday, we will live as pagans. We will make our own decisions. We will do what we want to do. But if Sunday morning rolls around and we gather in that building we call the church, then everything's going to be okay. We somehow make ourselves think that the the address or the congregation gathering in a certain facility, somehow or another, that place is special. God is at that place. As long as I write my tithe there, as long as I attend there, as long as I read my Bible when I'm there, as long as I watch my language and my attitude when I'm in that place, then somehow I have come into the presence of God, but I can leave that place and go live how I want to. Brothers and sisters, when you make yourself an idol thinking God is in one particular place, you are blinded to the fact that God is everywhere and he sees all things. And so he declares to the nation of Israel, don't ever think you will find me in one particular place because I am the God who is everywhere. And I demand you to live for me, putting no other gods before me, not just at the bottom of the mountain, not just in the church house, not just on Sunday, but in every area and in every place of your life. When we make for ourselves God an idol into what we want, we somehow believe that we can limit him and we can locate him. As long as I do this in this place, I will be okay. How often have we heard of churches, denominations, religions squabbling over locations, fighting over places? Even now, much of the history of the Middle East is fighting over locations where they believe to be holy or set apart. I have no qualm with the idea that it is great for us to see the history of the Bible unfold, that there's certainly special places where we can go and see in our heart be stirred. But brothers and sisters, I do not have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, and I do not have to see the physical hill of Calvary. Why? Because the God that I serve is not located in one location. He is everywhere with his people at all times. And so I do not want to get in my mindset that I can live one way in this area of my life or this place of my life and yet God not be there. So let me challenge you, brother or sister, you're faithful to attend the location of your church, you're faithful to gather with your people, but are you faithful to worship God in your job? 
Are you faithful to worship God in your home? Are you faithful to worship God at the Little League field and the hunting club? Are you faithful to worship God in the, in the neighborhood? Do you understand that the God whom which we serve is not tied to one location? If you believe that you can act how you want to as long as you're okay in a certain place, then you have made yourself an idol, and that is not the one true God. The third idea that comes from verse 4 is simply this. To carve an image or an idol is an attempt to limit God, is an attempt to locate God, but it's also an attempt to try to leverage God. What do I mean by that? Well, ultimately, in the pagan world of the Old Testament, uh, when the, the Egyptians or the Canaanites or the Philistines would make for themselves some sort of statue or altar, uh, they believed in some form or mystic way that the, the God would inhabit the thing that they made, that he would, he would come down and be a part of this thing that they made. And in fact, they believed that if they went to that location or to that image and they did enough rituals or enough acts, then they could demand from that God something in return. If they went to the golden calf and sacrificed their their children, they could demand from that God a good harvest. Or if they cut their arms, they could demand from that God something. We we see this in the prophets of Baal when they argue with Elijah over the one true God. They build their altar and they assume their God is in that altar and they begin to cut themselves and pray, hoping that their acts will somehow leverage their false God to move. Now, we learn in the story of Elijah that those false gods never answer because they are not going to answer because there is no other God but the one true God. But they believe that their acts at that altar would somehow leverage God to do what they wanted them to do. Now, we see this even in the nation of Israel. They struggled with this idea. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we find that the nation of Israel is beginning its war campaign and taking the promised land, and they make good decisions and bad decisions, and they find themselves in 1 Samuel chapter 4 fighting against the Philistines, and they've gone out, and they've done it in the wrong way. They've not listened to God, and they're losing the battle. And they literally say to one another, the reason we're losing the battle is because we haven't brought the Ark of the Covenant to this place. Go get that sacred box where God's magical, mystic presence is and bring it out here and we'll all of a sudden start winning. Well, we learned from the text they did not. Why? Because we don't make idols and somehow get to tell God what to do. And you might ask yourself, well, how do we do this again, Pastor? I don't have a golden calf in my living room. I don't lay before it and and put food in front of it, and I don't leverage God. So how do I do this in my own mind? Well, listen to me, brothers and sisters. When you make an idol of God, you believe you can leverage God. Here's how it goes. If I tithe enough, God will do this. If I attend enough, God will do this. If I pray the right words, then God will do this. I was recently listening to a a pastor who was preaching, and and he was basically saying in his sermon what God will and won't do, and he was putting the pressure on mankind. And he said, if we do this, then God will do this. If we do this, then we can demand. And he used this word. He said, we can demand from God this. Brothers and sisters, let us be very clear. God is over the heavens and the earth. We do not contain him. We do not control him. We do not manipulate him. We do not leverage him. There is nothing I can do to make God do what he, he is God over all things. Will he honor his promises? Yes. But I do not make for myself a God in which I think I can leverage him. I think I can do what I want to do. We do not make God this 
idea. We do not simply go after him. And, and how do we do this? Well, there's, there's two ways. We think we can manipulate God by some sort of religious act. If I pray the right words, if I give the right offering, uh, if, I, if I go to the right place, then God will have to listen and do what I ask him to do. And the second way in which we try to leverage God is we simply just minimize him. We find this probably more often in our lives. We will, uh, idols in the day in which uh, Moses is hearing these words, idols were picked up and put down however they wanted to be. And so we do the same thing with God. We will try to leverage him. When crisis hits, what do we do? We run back to prayer. We run back to our Bibles. We run back to our church membership and we beg God to fix the problem. And when the problem seems to subdue and when the problem seems to get better, we put down the idol and we go back to our life as if nothing ever happened and we begin to minimize God. And we think to ourselves that we can somehow leverage him when we want him. And oh, brothers and sisters, this is why God demands, do not make an idol. Do not make an idol out of me, for I am not a God that you can locate in one place. I am not a God that you think you can limit to the ideas that you have or that I will be uh, somehow uh, shaped into the form of your imagination. And do not think that I'm a God that you can somehow leverage to do what you want me to do. I am not your genie in the bottle. I am the God over heaven and earth, and there is no one like me. Idol worship is the idea of determining that we can tell God where to be, when we want to interact with him, and we will ask him and tell him to do what we want him to do. Brothers and sisters, if this is the attitude of our heart, we have not found the one true God. We have found a make-believe image carven in our own imagination, and this will lead to destruction. This is not the worship of the one true God. Oh, friend, let us never attempt to capture contain, assign, manage, or manipulate God into any idol in our own imagination. We are not to do this. So the question is how? How do I keep from this? How do I keep from, from, from worshiping God in this form of, uh, of idolatry? How do I keep my heart from thinking I can leverage God or limit God or locate God? How, how do I guard myself against this? Well, I think that we can find the word image in other places in the Bible, and this tends to help us. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, don't make an image, don't make an idol, don't carve anything. But before Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, we find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that we are in fact made in the image of God. That before sin entered the world, that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, that they reflected the, the goodness and the character and the passion and the love and the, all the qualities of the lawgiver were passed down into the, to the image of mankind and that we were to be the, the bearers of God's image. We were to be the statues, if you will, of God's image. We were to be what shows the glory of God into the world. The problem is in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world and marred the image of God. Like graffiti on the side of a building, we are now marred, reflecting the image of God. We're not able to show exactly what we're supposed to. There are glimpses, there are shades, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. And so the question is, how in the world do we now reflect the image of God in the right way? Well, brothers and sisters, I'm grateful that I will not have to answer this question on my own strength or my own power because, you see, if I try to reflect the image of God in my own strength or my own power, I will always come up with an idol. I was always come up with a false God that my prideful heart has invented. But glory be to God that God himself has sent Jesus into the world in order to be the perfect representation of the Father. In fact, we find of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that he is the invisible image of God. Or excuse me, he is the visible image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says he is the exact imprint of God. 
You see, we are told not to make idols or images of God, but God Himself sent His Son to give us the image of which we are to follow. Jesus Himself is the flesh of the law. Jesus Himself is not the idol that we seek with our own prideful heart, but Jesus Himself is God revealed to us. You want to know how you keep from making an idol out of a little God and seeking the one true God? Then you come to the very image that God has given us to worship that is Christ and Christ alone. In order to know that you're not making an idol in your heart and carving God into what you want Him to be, you must seek after, obey, and listen to the words of Christ. You must follow Christ. You must have Christ dwelling in you through the power of the Spirit. You must have Christ transforming you and wiping away the graffiti that is the broken image in which you have of God and transforming you into the glorious image of the one who's supposed to bear witness to the God of all creation. It is Christ in which we find ourselves guarded against idolatry. When I worship Christ, when I seek Christ, when I'm saved by Christ, I will be guarded against trying to find my own God in my own way and limiting, locating, and trying to leverage some false God. But I will go after Christ. Oh, that we would go after Christ. To come to God is not to come through idols. It's not to make God who, he wants, who we want Him to be. It's not to try to form Him into our opinion. It is to let go of our pride and run after Jesus and take up His words and follow His commands and do what He's called us to do and declare the only perfect representation of God is Christ and the only perfect one to fulfill the law is Christ and the only opinion that I will have of God is Christ's opinion for He is the one who's bared the image perfectly. Brothers and sisters, do you seek after Christ? This is how you guard against idolatry. You must ask yourself, in your attitudes and in your efforts, in the way in which you approach God, are you seeking after idols or are you seeking after God? Martin Luther would put it this way in order to examine our heart. He would simply say this, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon is your God. Brothers and sisters, I hope your heart clings to and relies upon Jesus Christ, the very image of the invisible God. That is the prohibition of the command. Now let us close with the promise. Verses 5 and 6 make this one of the longest commands in the Bible, but it is coming with a promise. There is a negative and a positive part to the promise. We'll move quickly here. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Bible says here that God is a jealous God. We should not translate this necessarily in the way we view jealousy. We would be better to translate it as a zealous God, one who is passionately for his people, one who wants the best for his people, one who knows what is his and will not share it with others. The definition, like the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, finds itself in the analogy of marriage. God is simply saying, like a husband who will not share his wife with another or a wife who will not share his husband with another, I am jealous for my people and I will not share them. I will not spread my glory out to any other. I am passionately for them and I will burn against those who pull them away from me. And then he gives us this promise in both the negative and the positive. First, let us look at the negative. He says, if you decide to worship me as an idol, if you move away from me and go after a false god, here's what will happen. You will see the ramifications and the ripple effects upon generation after generation after generation. 
Now, he's not saying that children will pay the penalty for the sins of their father. He's not saying they will be held accountable, that each of us stands before God in our own way. But what he is saying is simply this, the effects of disobedience are long-reaching. Fathers and mothers, listen to me now. If you are raising children in your home to view God as an idol, one that you can locate and limit and leverage and you pick him up and put him down whenever you want to or you live however you want to except on that day where you gather at that building you call the church. If you're living that life in front of your children, if you're making a priority of everything the world has to offer instead of God, then listen to me very carefully. Your children are going to grow up and do exactly what you are doing and God will be jealous and burn against them as well. But there is a motivation here for moms and dads, for grandparents, for generation upon generation. Do not let the children turn from me. In fact, Jesus would say in the New Testament, speaking of children, that for one to lead them astray, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. Do not be the cause of the fact that your children grow up and worship a false god and serve an idol in which they believe is the real God because you did not learn to follow God correctly. Moms and dads feel the weight of this command. But then he closes with the positive. He says, but, verse 6, he says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I want you to notice the contrast and the alliteration of the two sentences. In verse 5, it says third and fourth generation. In verse 6, it says, but the blessings will go on for thousands of generations. You see, God is telling us, even in the weight of this, that my desire is to do good, not harm. My desire is to bless, not hold back. Yes, punishment will come. Punishment will see its plan. Punishment will be doled out. But ultimately, I really just want to bless my people. And if you follow me, and if you worship me, and you seek me truly, and you don't try to carve me or shape me or put me into your opinion, if you see me for who I am, and you follow me and the Son of Christ in which I sit you, then you will be blessed for thousands of generations that the goodness of God will flow. And what does this mean, moms and dads? If you are raising your children to love the one true God and to follow him and not make idols or opinions of what you think God is, but to open the Bible and say, children, this is the God in whom we serve, then the Bible says here there is a promise that God will be faithful and loving to those who continue to do that generation after generation after generation after generation. There is a weight to this commandment. There is a weight in this promise. Both obedience and disobedience have far-reaching effects. They are rippled through the generation. But the real desire of God in the second commandment is that generation after generation would be blessed for seeking Him and no other. That even in the prohibition and the promise, there is the grace of God that if you do this, I will bless you for generation upon generation for thousands and thousands. God desires that we would have a relationship with him. And he tells us what he expects from us. And in that expectation, he says, and when you do this, I will bless you. I'm for you. I am jealous and zealous for you. I want you unto myself. And so let us close with a simple application. Let me just ask you two questions and then I will pray. Question number one, are you committed to worshiping the right God the right way. Brothers and sisters, I pray now that you would examine your heart and ask this question clearly. Are you committed to worship the right God the right way? Do you worship the God of the Bible, listening to his word, pouring over it, 
following the path of Christ, having come into relationship with Jesus, having walked with Him. You cannot know God if you do not know Christ. Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John 14, He would say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If you want access to the God of the Ten Commandments, you must come through His Son, the perfect image of God. Are you worshiping the one true God the right way? And then the second question would be simply this. Are you leading others to do the same? You see, the context of the second commandment is this community of generations that seek after God, that guard against idolatry. Moms and dads, do your children see you seeking the one true God of the Bible or the God that you've made up out of convenience for your lifestyle? Grandmother and granddad, do your children and your grandchildren see you seeking and following the words of Christ and listening and obeying? Or do they see you just picking up God and putting him down whenever you feel like you need to? Oh, brother, sister, do you find yourself running to God in crisis but doing what you want when it seemingly is no threat or danger to you? And let me be clear with you, you're not worshiping the one true God, you're worshiping an idol. And idols, as we learn from Psalms 115, have hands but can't hold, have feet but can't walk, have voices but can't speak, and brothers and sisters, they have no life and they will not rescue you from the eternity that will separate you from God. To worship the one true God, we must worship Him the right way. I pray this morning you will examine your heart and ask the Lord to look you over, search you, and ask the question, Lord, where am I making you into an idol? Where am I carving you into my opinion and my desires and my wants? Lord, give me a zeal to listen to your word and obey you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the God who's revealed yourself. Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 says you spoke, you speak, you give us your word. You reveal yourself to us and that tells us that you desire from us exactly what, what you want. You give us the instructions of how we are to live. And so I pray this morning as we examine this second commandment, we shall have not make for ourselves idols, no graven image. Lord, I pray you would search our hearts and know that, that while we may not be people who carve statues in our houses, we are people who make idols in our hearts. As John Calvin would say, our hearts are a perpetual idol factory. We can carve you into whatever we think we want you to be. We can, we can make you soft on sin if we choose to chase sin. We can, we can make you judgmental to our neighbor if we choose to, judge, to seek you as a prideful God. We, we can put you in any box we want to put you in and think that we're worshiping you when in fact we're just simply worshiping an idol. And so Lord, I pray that even now you would examine our heart and that we would begin to hear your voice from your word. And we would not attempt to locate you or limit you or leverage you. But we would simply say you are the God that cannot be contained. And you are the God who declares who you are. And our only hope is to follow you through your son, Jesus Christ. And to obey him. And Father, I pray especially for those moms and dads, grandparents, people of influence. Lord, I pray as they influence others, they would be themselves humbly seeking after you so that they would make sure they are not passing down to their children a jealous God who will, who will come after generation after generation who seek idols. God, we don't want to do that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage moms and dads to take serious the call to not make you an idol, but worship you as the one true God. 
We thank you, Father, for your word and for the opportunity to be examined by it. We pray by your spirit you would change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.